again and welcome. Um, will we, can I get a show of hands who was here last Sunday? It's not like a, oh, really, you were gone, Anne. How embarrassing. I just wanted to know, like, point of reference, how many people would know what I'm talking about when you see this picture? That was amazing. Like, like the perfect morning for that to happen when we're talking about church as family together. Um, and jokingly in the announcements, if you weren't here, I didn't have anything to announce. So I said that Bob was bringing us donuts, which he wasn't. And then I got down off the stage and he's like, wait, should, should I go get donuts? I'm like, no, I'm totally kidding. And I go next door to the kids' church area to check in on them and make sure they have everything they need. And I walk up, and there's a man with three boxes of Top Pot donuts from, he said, I bought everything QFC had. Oh, that is so nice. So I, so I go back downstairs, and I grab a table and a little knife, and I'm going to cut them so that we all get a morsel. And I'm, ha like, halfway through cutting all of the boxes, three boxes of donuts, and four more boxes of donuts show up from an online viewer and her son. They weren't intending to come to church that morning. She's like, let's go bring donuts. And so four boxes come in. And then, unbeknownst to me, we had someone set up a table over there in the grassy area. And if you know Chris Treefry, Chris, you don't do anything halfway, like nothing halfway. I think he had, like, eight or ten boxes of Krispy Kreme. It may, eight, 28, 18, I'm getting 30. I'm getting 100 boxes. Chris had 100 boxes of donuts down there. And you guys, I've never seen so many donuts in my life. And it was so cool. It was so cool. And so I'm not announcing anything this week. Anything. I was considering telling you my favorite Starbucks drink, but I'm going to hold off on that. I don't think, okay. Um, but I do just want to say that is so representative of who we are as family together. And it has been this, the journey of our life here at Brookview where um, we just, there's just like this love lived atmosphere among us and towards the people around us. And I, Jason got to tell you how grateful he was to be a part of that. And um, in this morning, it is my turn. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart for who you are. Those donuts are silly, but they are such a picture of the type of community that this is. Um, you don't even ask. You just kind of lean into things. And so thank you. And those of you that are watching online, you get to stay home today and enjoy online service without going anywhere. Um, and so, again, thank you. That was just really, really a beautiful thing. I do have an announcement today, so, um, and that is life groups. I mean, some of your kids are back to school. Some of your kids are heading back to school this week, and we are just kind of in that fall mode, whether we like it or not. Um, and uh, as part of our fall rhythm here at Brookview, we have life groups, and those take a break over the summer for us to just kind of enjoy um, getting together kind of eclectically and in less of a rhythmic way. But life groups meet together weekly, 
And um, we don't call them life groups because you're in it for life when you sign up. You sign up just for a quarter. So it's the fall quarter that goes from October to November. And they start that first week of October. In some cases, some of the groups start the last week of September. Um, and then they go through December. And so we'd love to get you connected in one of those where you can live life alongside of other people, where you can talk about faith questions that you have, where you can explore the messages that are happening on Sunday and kind of bring them to a fuller place in your life and just be known a little bit more than what sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning affords to everybody. And so if you could sign up for those, if you're interested in being in them, we're just starting to plan and try to figure out um, how many groups do we need. And so for those of you that have been in life groups before, you don't need to RSVP again. Your leader is going to reach out to you or maybe already has. And if you could just respond to them as soon as you get that email from them, that will help them to plan as well how many um, spaces are available. And we just don't call life groups full. Like our family is never too full for more. And so um, I hope that you will consider doing that. We have all sorts of different types of groups, uh, men's, women's, online groups. We have um, mixed groups. We are going to have a high school group. So please, please, please um, sign up for those. The way that you do that is by marking that little white card that is on your chair. It's called our connect card. And you put those in the basket on your way out the door. There's a little spot, a cabinet um, to the right hand side in the lobby. And then for those of you that are watching online, you can go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and click on the connect card. And if you sign up there, um, Jason will reach out to you. Um, you'll get some information about what groups are, what that commitment looks like, and then some nuts and bolts of meeting places and times. So we look forward to connecting with you. If you know you want to be in a group, um, sign up as soon as possible so that that helps us to plan together. It's you. It's always been you. Let's go. But it's even more you in this moment. <laughs> so don't do anything weird. What would be weird? I don't know. Was I supposed to transition in some other way? This that? transition's amazing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Nailed it, didn't Dang, we? Dang, this is the yeah. best transition of the year. <laughs> okay. You look nice, too. This is, if you didn't, we're married, so. It is a little weird. In fact, this, the whole morning's a little weird. You know, this is decent. We, we normally have not too many people here for uh, the Labor Day weekends, because everybody's, I mean, we just, we're a church of partiers, and so <laughs> people go to Vegas for the weekend, but several of you didn't go to Vegas this weekend, so we're glad that you're here. Um, this morning's going to be different, um, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm actually expecting that it's going to be super, super cool. Many of you know that I am big on the Bible Project resource, and um, so my daughter, Kate, um, told me about it several years ago. She was a college student going to George Fox down in the Portland area in Oregon. Go Bruins. Go Bruins. Go Bruins. That felt... That felt deeply connected to. <laughs> so she's going to school down there, and she was going to, to a, a 
fantastic church down there, not as good as this one, but, but like the second best church in the world. <laughs> and she was like, Dad, I found this really cool new thing. Um, and, and so I, I checked it out, and I was just blown away. Um, it, it's what happens when Bible scholars team up with artists in, in a sort of millennial kind of way. And what they do is they help the Bible come to life for modern people. So they have all kinds of videos. There's a video for every single book of the Bible, and it explains the cultural and, and um, like context and background and all of that, as well as some of the major themes that you'll come across in the book. And so um, many of you follow like Bible reading plans that you do through the year. And um, for me, these overviews of each book they lay such a great foundation and base for understanding that even as a pastor, so I'm like trained in this stuff, when I get to a new book of the Bible, I try to go watch the Bible Project video on that book before, before I read it. It's just super helpful. And it's also nice that they try to keep these videos like eight minutes max. Again, it's very millennial. Um, so some of the longer biblical books, they'll make into two videos. And you guys, I have to tell you, I, I watched the, there's two videos that do the book of Revelation. How many of you are like, you've, you've started to read the book of Revelation or kind of dabbled with it and you went, this is confusing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so these, the videos on the book of Revelation are just, they're sensational. And I get to the end of that thing and I just feel like I want to fall on my knees and worship. I mean, it, it's just amazing. Um, and it's not so much that, like, the videos are incredible. They are. But it's more just that God is incredible. And, and what he's doing in Jesus, in our world, is incredible. And the, the videos just help unpack all of that so that I can appreciate it and understand what Scripture teaches. And, like, again, even as a trained pastor, I learn a ton. They're super helpful. So there are videos also on topics and themes. So stuff like the temple and the Holy Spirit, and the day of the Lord, and eternal life, and holiness. And so a few months ago, I, YouTube just suggested a video for me. You know how you're on YouTube, and it figures out who you are and in sort of a creepy way, and then throws out stuff like you would probably like this. Um, and so I saw this, and I was just sort of captivated by it, the title. So they're only, again, five, five, eight minutes long, so I watched. And it was, it was absolutely beautiful. Um, but I discovered that it was actually a part of a, of a series. So a six-video series on the character of God. And so, of course, I went and watched the whole thing. And it occurred to me that six videos combined that are five-ish minutes long, mathematician would be about? Oh, gosh. Be about 30 minutes. Six times five is 30. And so... And so... So that's kind of, it's kind of like the length of a short sermon. And some of you are like, not one of yours. Yes, no, <laughs> not one of mine. Today's going to be, it's going to be quick, man. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to watch this entire six video series together. Um, now this was created by a um, Bible scholar, I think one of the leading Bible scholars in the world, Dr. Tim Mackey, and artist John Collins and their team. And um, they have, you guys, they have so much good stuff on their site. And so I, if you haven't, or even if you have, I just really encourage you to, to check it out. Um, it's just bibleproject.com. Um, but from the site, here's, here's what the Bible Project is. So it says, 
Bible Project is a nonprofit, crowdfunded organization that produces 100% free Bible videos, podcasts, articles, classes, and educational Bible resources to help make the biblical story accessible to everyone everywhere. From page one to the final word, we believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. This diverse collection of ancient books overflows with wisdom for our modern world. As we let the biblical story speak for itself, we believe the message of Jesus will transform individuals and entire communities. Many people have misunderstood the Bible as a collection of inspirational quotes or a divine instruction manual dropped from heaven. Most of us gravitate toward sections we enjoy while avoiding parts that are confusing or even disturbing. Our Bible resources help people experience the Bible in a way that is approachable, engaging, and transformative. We do this by showcasing the literary art of the scriptures and tracing biblical themes from beginning to end. Rather than taking the stance of a specific tradition or denomination, we create materials to elevate the Bible for all people and draw our eyes to its unified message. Tim Mackey and John Collins, here's how it came about. Tim Mackey and John Collins, uh, longtime friends and one-time roommates at Multnomah University, were tossing around ideas on how to help people read through Scripture while avoiding the common pitfalls and misunderstandings. How could they present complex biblical themes in a way that was real and unapologetic but approachable? Combining Tim's deep biblical understanding and John's passion for visual storytelling, they created their first two videos in 2014 and put them online for free. Less than 10 years later, we have over 180 videos and 350 podcast episodes, which can all be accessed on our website, the Bible Project app, YouTube, and more. Okay, so today we're going to watch this this six-video series on the character of God, And um, again, each video is four to six-ish minutes long, so we're going to watch all three, the first three all combined as one, and then we're going to worship a little, um, and then we'll watch the second three all combined, and then we'll kind of close with worship. But you guys, I I really sense God is going to speak to us today afresh in in a little bit different way. And here's the final thing. I really don't think we can spend too much time being reminded of what God is like. One of the wisest spiritual giants, kind of the mid-century prophet from the last century, was A.W. Tozer. And Tozer famously wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is is true not not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Here we go. The Bible is a collection of many ancient 
Israelite scrolls. And together, they're telling one unified story. Now, if you look at the second scroll, Exodus, you'll find two important sentences. They're actually so important that they're referenced and requoted over 20 more times within the Bible itself. It must be important. What does it say? Yahweh, Yahweh, that's God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I can see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So... Is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations. And he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now, this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the Ten Commandments. The first two are... Don't give your allegiance to other gods and don't make any idol images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. All right, and then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you miss something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement, as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes. And so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with and you'll see. They're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El-Rahum Dachanun. And the line, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness, matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words. Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And... How is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? 
by forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, but God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. The very first word used in this description of God is compassionate, or in Hebrew, rachum. This word also appears as a noun, rachamim, or compassion. And what's fascinating is that both of these words are related to the Hebrew word for womb, rechem. So compassion in the Hebrew Bible is centered on a person's core, and the word invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. So rahum is a word that conveys intense emotion. Sometimes it's even translated as deeply moved, like in the story of King Solomon who meets two women who've just given birth. One of their babies sadly dies, but then both women claim that the baby still living is theirs. As a test, Solomon says to cut the baby in two and give each mother a half. And the baby's real mother is deeply moved. She would rather the other woman take her baby than see her child die. And it's her compassion that reveals that she's the true mother. But rahum isn't just an emotional word. It also involves action. And surprisingly, the word is used most often to describe God's actions motivated by his emotions. Like when the Israelites are suffering and oppressed in Egypt, God hears their cries and is compelled by his compassion, his rachamim, to rescue them. Then, as the Israelites travel through the dangerous wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty. And God is rachum, caring for them as his own child. He provides everything they need, food, water, and clothing as he personally guides them. So it's no surprise that when Yahweh reveals his character to the Israelites in the wilderness, he begins by saying he's compassionate. But despite Yahweh's continual rachamim, the Israelites turn away from him time and again. They reject Yahweh's compassion and instead give their allegiance to other gods, 
And rather than showing compassion to each other, they do violence. And their rebellion results in exile, and they're scattered among the nations. And it's in this dark moment in Israel's story that we come to the book of Isaiah, where Yahweh compares himself to a mother full of rachamim toward her baby. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child or have no compassion or rachamim on the child of her womb? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. God is full of motherly compassion and he will rescue his people. And as you read further in Isaiah, you realize that God is going to do this by entering into the suffering of humanity. And this points forward to a time when Jesus comes on the scene. He is Yahweh's deep compassion become human. In Greek, the word compassion is oiktirmos. And as Jesus embraces the sick and cares for the outcast, he is deeply moved by human suffering. Jesus compares himself to a mother hen using her wings to shield her chicks from danger as he gathers people into his embrace. And in the ultimate expression of oiktirmas, Jesus is moved by compassion to enter into humanity's suffering, into death itself, to rescue and bring us near to God. And it's this same life of compassion that Jesus calls his followers to imitate, allowing ourselves to be moved by the pain of others, to embrace the hurting, and to participate in relieving suffering in the world. In this way, we too can embody the compassion of Yahweh, or in Jesus' words, be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Now you can see how fitting it is that compassionate is the first word God uses to describe himself. So when we're in pain or see others suffering, we can be certain that God is deeply moved to respond and that he's there to meet us with his deep compassion. We're going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chanun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word chen is often translated as grace or favor. And if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it's motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve, not a generous gift. Like Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he doesn't deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. 
But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they don't deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we're like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So, now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. And this is what it means that God is gracious. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this third phrase that God is slow to anger. Now, that might surprise some people. Isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry, striking people down for their sins? Well, it turns out that God's anger in the Bible is way more nuanced than that and way more interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger is pronounced erek apayim, or literally long of nose. But what does God's patience have to do with a long nose? Well, first, we need to look at the common biblical Hebrew way to say that someone is angry. Their nose burned hot. Like in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar thinks that Joseph tried to sleep with his wife, his nose burned hot. It's usually translated, his anger burned. It's describing how your body, especially your face, gets hot when you're filled with anger. And so in Hebrew, the main words for anger are either nose or heat or hot nose. This is why a patient person is called long of nose. It takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Like in the biblical proverb, a person's wisdom is their long nose. That is, their slow anger. Now, in the Bible, God gets angry numerous times, but God doesn't have a nose or get hot. These are metaphors using our experience of hot anger to describe how God feels when he witnesses human evil. Just like you would get angry if you saw a child being bullied on the playground, so God gets angry when humans oppress each other and ruin his world. 
In the Bible, God's anger is an expression of his justice and his love for the world. But he's slow to anger, which means he gives people lots of time to change. Like in the story of the Exodus, when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has their baby boys thrown into the waters, God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's given 10 chances to let Israel go free. But after the 10th refusal, Pharaoh rides out with his chariots to destroy the Israelites. And so God destroys him in the waters. Pharaoh's own evil is turned back upon him. And we read that this is an act of God's hot anger. Now, that's really intense, but think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry at Pharaoh's evil and eventually do something about it. And notice that God's anger is expressed by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And this is actually how God's anger is shown throughout the scriptures, like in the story of the Israelites. Over and over again, for hundreds of years, they betray the God who rescued them from slavery. And though he gives them many chances to turn around, they keep giving their allegiance to the gods of other nations. And each time we read that the hot anger of God burned against the Israelites. But notice what always follows. God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Israel wanted to serve the gods of other nations. And so God, in his just anger, gives them what they want as those nations circle back and defeat Israel. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says, God's anger is being revealed against human evil. And then three times he says what that looks like. God hands people over to their destructive desires and decisions, even if it leads to death. But Paul also says, God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and change. Because remember, God's anger is a response to human evil. And it's based on a deeper character trait, his compassion and his loyal love. God is not content to let people sit in their own self-destruction. In the Bible, God's on a mission to rescue. This is why Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to die as a demonstration of God's love for his enemies. He would stand in the place of his people who were choosing self-destruction and take the consequences of their decisions upon himself. In Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we see God's anger at evil and his love for people working together to provide forgiveness and life for a humanity lost in self-ruin. So God's anger in the Bible is really important, but it's not the end of the story. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he's good. And he's extremely patient, working out his plan to restore people to his love. And that's what it means to say that God is slow to anger. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. 
Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asked God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course, he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist that's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal We're going to look at this last characteristic of God. It's the Hebrew word emet, which can be translated as faithfulness or even truth. It's related to another word you've probably heard before, amen, which is an untranslated Hebrew expression meaning that's truth. So emet can mean truth and it can refer to correct ideas or concepts. This is because emet has to do with stability and reliability, like when Moses holds up his hands for hours to defeat Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. His friends put a rock under him and support his hands so that his hands will remain emet or steady. 
When a Met is used of people, it describes reliable and stable character or trustworthiness. Like when Moses appoints leaders in Israel, they're to be people of Emet, people who are trustworthy, who won't take bribes or distort justice. So to say that God is full of Emet doesn't just mean that God tells the truth or stands for truth. It means that God is faithful and trustworthy. This is why Moses calls God a rock, saying that he's faithful, just, and upright. He's saying that he can trust God to be consistent to his character. And the Hebrew word for trust is actually the verb form of the word emet. It's he'emin. It can be translated as to believe or to have faith, but most basically it means to consider someone trustworthy or to trust. The first person we meet in the Bible who considers God to be trustworthy is Abraham. God makes a promise that Abraham and his wife Sarah will have a huge family and that through them, all nations will experience God's blessing. But Abraham and Sarah are really, really old, and they've never been able to have any children. And yet, in the face of these challenges, Abraham means God. He considers God trustworthy to open a way forward. And God does show Emet to Abraham and Sarah. In just four generations, their descendants form a whole nation called Israel. And God invites Israel into a trusting and faithful relationship. And when God leads them out of slavery in Egypt, Israel means in God. They trust and rely on him. But when they come to the land God promised to Abraham, and they find out it's filled with giant cities protected by giants, their trust in God's Emet fails. But eventually, we meet an Israelite who does trust God in the face of giants. It's David. He yells at the giant, You come with a sword and a spear, but I come with the name of the God of Israel. David consistently relies on God. In fact, it said that David walked in and met before God. So David considers God to be faithful and responds with faithfulness. This is why God promises to raise up a faithful descendant of David, whose kingdom will endure forever, or in Hebrew, have emet. This faithful king will become the source of trust and stability for others forever. But when the kingdom later collapses, the Israelites find themselves without a home and without a king. And they cry out, Oh God, where is your loyal love that you swore to David in your emet? They're accusing God of abandoning his promises to Abraham and to David. Is God trustworthy? Is he faithful after all? The first line of the New Testament is an answer to that question. This is the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, through Jesus, God fulfills his promises. Or as Paul says, Jesus came on behalf of God's faithfulness. He is the faithful king whose kingdom will endure forever and who invites all nations to trust God. Now, trusting anyone is risky. It's hard to know if anyone is really full of emet. But the biblical story portrays a God who's been faithful all along and whose promises were fulfilled in the story of Jesus. And so as we look out at the obstacles facing us and our world, we're invited to take that same risk and join Abraham, David, and the people of God in trusting that God is overflowing with faithfulness. And I pray that your love will have deep roots. I pray that we'll have a strong foundation. 
May you have power together with all the Lord's holy people to understand Christ's love. May you know how wide and long and high and deep it is. And may you know his love, even though it can't be known completely. Then you will be filled with everything God has for you. God is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. He does everything by his power that is working in us. Give him glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Give him glory through all time and forever and ever. Amen. You are out of here, and we will see you next Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.